For those of you that have been hanging around with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been in this Christmas series called An Unexpected Christmas, and we've talked about the lineage of Christ, and we've talked about how God is with us, you know, that's Emmanuel. We've talked about the nativity scene and the Magi and Herod and all these different things, and this morning we find ourselves in a very particular passage that, you know, so far maybe we've We've felt this kind of peace on earth type of feeling through the Christmas series. But this morning, it's a little bit different. Matthew reminds us this morning that there's no such thing as Christmas without conflict. So kind of keep that in mind as we read from Matthew 2, verses 3 through 15. So if you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, we're in Matthew 3, sorry, Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and and departed to Egypt And remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So it's a short passage. And it's got a really simple big idea. The idea is this. The father protects his son from destruction. That's the big idea of the passage. The father protects his son from destruction. Some of you are thinking, uh, you know, how, <laughs> how, how are you going to preach that? How is that really going to speak to my heart? Well, to help us navigate through that, we're going to look at a few things. Number one, the cruelty of Herod. Number two, the character of Joseph. And number three, the Christ of Israel. So to start off, the cruelty of Herod. So what we're going to have to do first is kind of dance around our passage to kind of set us up for the next two points, which really dig deep into the passage that we're reading this morning. So who was Herod? As you know, maybe from from previous weeks, we know that Herod was the king of the Jews at this time when when Jesus was born. And something that we can see there in in actually Matthew, if you turn to 2 verses 1 through 2, It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they were were coming, the Magi, they came and they were speaking to this, this king, Herod. And so Herod, as you know, as the story goes, I mean, He's got an anger issue. He's got a, he's got a problem. He was a tyrant. Uh, history even tells us about Herod that, that he drowned his brother-in-law in a not-so, or he drowned his brother-in-law in a, in a, shallow, in a shallow area of water and that he had his two sons strangled. And that Leon Morris in his commentary on Matthew, he wrote this about Herod. When he was himself near death, he left orders that one member of each family should be executed on his death so that the whole nation would really be in mourning. So if you think about it, when, um, 
there in, 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 in Matthew 2, 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So we can see here that Herod has just got this history of murderous rage. The Bible says that when he got the news from the wise men that they didn't come back to him, that he was troubled. Yes, he was troubled. He was a maniac. Of course he was troubled. But why was Herod so furious? What was it? Was it just because he was tricked? No, the the wise men said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You see, in Jerusalem, in Herod's mind, he thought, there's only room for one king in this place, and it's me. And so this story of of death and destruction really comes home to us. And we can look at Herod, and we can say, "This this guy's really egotistical. I mean, how selfish to try to kill Jesus just because he didn't want to answer to another king. How selfish for him to not want to hear somebody else say, hey, this is how things are going to be in my kingdom. How dark and twisted it is to try to kill Jesus because you yourself don't want a king. Now, even as I rattle some of that stuff off, I can kind of see some of you going, hmm, that sounds familiar. Actually, it sounds a little too familiar. Because it's really easy for us to look at this text and look at Herod and just say, man, that guy was a tyrant and how evil he was. But I wonder why Matthew is putting him here on full display. I think that it might be that although Herod's sin is magnified, what if it's a mirror to let us see the little Herod that's in all of us? What if there's a little Herod in us that says, I don't want to worship that king. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do. I don't want to hear any laws. This is my land. At this point, maybe some of you are saying, yeah, that's a little dramatic. I mean, when I don't get my way, I don't run around killing children. But the thing is, remember, Herod's sin is magnified, and it might be a mirror showing you something that's in your heart that might be a little more subtle. In David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, he gives this really good illustration about how this works out on a more day-to-day, ordinary basis. Because if some of you are thinking, yeah, I really can't relate with this because that's too dramatic, maybe here's some conflict that's a little bit less dramatic. See, David and his wife, Nan, um, when he was in seminary, he was interning at a church during, during one of the, the summer seasons, and churches are, you know, notorious for really loading down the intern on the summer and during the summer series when the pastors are gone away for vacation. Not this church, but most churches. And so David, he's thinking about his responsibilities. I mean, he's going to teach Sunday school. He's going to preach the morning service. He might preach the evening service. 
Um, he's going to be counseling people during the week. He's going to be hosting people on the weekends because the people work during the week, so he's going to have to host them when they're off, even though that's when he's on. And so a lot of things go into Saturday and Sunday. I mean, the pressure is on. I mean, if you're going to be teaching Sunday school on Sunday morning, now, I know some of you guys are great planners, but it's just inevitable that your Saturday, you're going to be tweaking some things, maybe even Sunday morning tweaking some things to get things right because you, you respect what you're trying to teach and you want to get things right. So think about David, how the pressure was on and then how he might be preaching that day or, and then how he's hosting people maybe on a Sunday afternoon. And then if he's going to be preaching that Sunday night, then after he wakes up from his nap after lunch, he's tweaking some things for that sermon. What do you think David wants to do at 8 p.m. on Sunday night? I mean, after a Sunday like that, he said the one thing that he really wanted to do was sit down on the couch, drink his favorite juice, grab a handful of Fig Newtons, read the sports page, and just check out and go to sleep. That's all he wanted to do. But that's one perspective in this household. And what about Nan? Think about what Nan's been doing all weekend. When David's been putting that time towards the final preparation on this or that, or when David is lingering long in the corridors and in the hallways and the atrium with other members, asking them questions, getting to know them better, maybe even trying to speak some wisdom and some nurture and some care into their lives, and Nan's watching. And then she's there hosting, helping host these families at these meals. And then there's the evening service. And then when 8 o'clock comes on Sunday evening, what do you think Nan wants to do? Nan wants to connect. See, the one thing that David wants on Sunday evening is peace and quiet. And the one thing that Nan wants on Sunday evening is personal connection. And so do you see where the collision happens? Some of you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't really serve at the church. I can't really relate with this. What fills your calendar? What takes you away from your family? What, what is it that you deal with? And maybe some of you think, well, I don't really have to relate with a, a, husband, a husband who is leading a church or helping lead a church or anything like that. But nonetheless, there are these conflicts that we have to deal with. And these two things kept colliding on four consecutive Sunday nights. And then some of you might be thinking, well, man, what is the big deal about wanting a little bit of peace and quiet? And then maybe some of you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal about wanting your husband to cherish and nurture you? Well, David says this. He says, the truth is, is that there is nothing wrong with those things in their proper place, but they have gotten out of proportion as demonstrated by the strife that results when each had fallen prey to sin's insanity and self-defeating futility. Because here, here was the insanity, here was the insane part about it. David says, I was willing to quarrel in order to get peace and quiet. You see the breakdown there? And then Nan was willing to quarrel in order to get intimacy. See, there is nothing per se wrong with either rest or intimacy, but when I want it too much... When it rules me, I sin against the ruler of heaven and earth. 
when expectations dig in, we inevitably sin against each other too. He goes on, he says, we think, I've got to have it. It's mine. I demand my rights. I need my needs met. You're getting in the way of my precious, cherished longings. You're messing with my program to control reality. You're not meeting my expectations. You see the Herod coming out now? The big idea is that the father protects his son from destruction, but the kind of the twist here is that by grace through faith, we are now sons of God, and the father has protected us ultimately from our own destructive selves. So it just kind of sets us up this morning to see the cruelty of Herod. Now let's look at the character of Joseph. So we'll, we'll dive into Matthew 10, uh, 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So you see what, what, we, what Joseph is being asked to do. He's being asked in a dream, he's getting a divine message to leave and go to Egypt. But why Egypt? What was it about Egypt? Because I really wanted like, to preach this sermon on how Joseph, he's taking his family and he's going to Egypt and it's this dangerous place and man, look at his faith. We gotta be like Joseph, woo! But the more I did my research, I found that during this part in history, during this time in history, Egypt was actually a safe place for Jews. There's actually over a million, maybe a population over a million around Alexandria. Now, I'm not saying that they went to Alexandria, but what I'm saying is that there was pockets of Jews within Egypt. So Egypt was actually a safe place for them to go to. So how does Joseph respond? Look in verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Some commentators say that there's four, no, 12 Greek terms that show up in the response that were also in the command. So rise, take your family, go to Egypt, like all that stuff. There was like 12 terms in the command that show up also in Joseph's response. And some of you are like, Daniel, you're geeking out. What are you trying to tell me here? All right, so here's the big deal, is that Joseph obeys fully. I mean, he's literally crossing his T's and dotting his I's. He hears the word of the Lord, and he obeys fully. But not only fully, check out his, his, his response, his, his timing, how quickly he does it. It says that he awoke and took them in the night. And so some commentators say that the Greek reads as if it was like he had a dream, he got the command, he wakes up, he goes, Mary, this is what we got going on. Let's get, let's get Jesus together. I'm going to pack the baby bag. Some of you guys didn't get that because you don't do that. You don't pack the baby bag. You let mommy do it all. Right? But Joseph, he tells them that we got to go. Here's the plan. Then we're going, and they're going during night. Now, don't get me wrong. When you travel on the highways in the Middle East during this time in history, it's a dangerous thing, okay? But going to Egypt in itself was 
was the, the point was safety. The, whole, the, the big deal was is that although Rome had control of Egypt, Herod didn't. Are you experiencing any twists and turns and detours in your life? I mean, you got to feel for Joseph. Because, I mean, it just seems like since he started liking Mary, he can't get a good night's sleep. I mean, you know what I mean? It just, it just seems like he's just getting woken up all the time. I mean, here's, here's hey, we're going to do this, and then here's a detour, and there's all this kind of stuff going on. And, and you look at Joseph, and you don't see him pulling out his hair. And you're like, what's going on here? But what about you? What do you got going on in your life? I don't mind a little awkward silence because a lot of us never get it. What are the twists and turns and detours that God has going on in your life right now or that you just came out of? What is God up to in those moments? The big idea is that the father protects his son from destruction, and he does. But then some of us look at this text, and we can't help but notice that not all the sons were. Some scholars say that there's an estimate of about 20 to 30 ch children died during this situation in Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas. So how are you going to counsel the people that you're discipling? How are you going to counsel the person in your small group that says, look, I heard Daniel's big idea that the father protects his son from destruction, but why didn't he protect my son? Why didn't he protect my daughter? I know it gets uncomfortable right now, right? Some of you guys are like, hey, it's the Christmas season. Why, why, are you, why are you dropping this bomb on us right here? It's supposed to be peace on earth, joy to the world. But this is what I love about Scripture. It gets real. It doesn't let us believe the lie that there's no conflict in Christmas because there is. Just because Jesus came and he was born doesn't mean everything's okay yet. Right now, When Jesus, not right now, but when Jesus was born, that was the beginning of the end of evil and death. But it wasn't the end of it yet. Does that make sense? But some of us wrestle with that question. In April, Daryl Timberlake and I, we were studying at Starbucks, and we were supposed to, you know Daryl, he's like, the guy can get a PhD on his lunch break. <laughs> but we're, I'm not joking. So we're, we're studying at, at, at Starbucks at 10, we're, we're supposed to stay at Starbucks till about 10.30. But for some reason that night, the Starbucks closed at 10. So I call Aaron, I'm like, hey baby, I'm on my way home. We got, we got done a little bit early. She's like, okay, great, I'll see you in just a little bit. So I walk in the house and at the top of the stairs is my wife laying face down on the carpet. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? So I walk up to her, 
And she's, she's like moaning in pain, like my stomach hurts. Now, mind you, Aaron and I can get really dramatic about certain things in our life. So at first glance, I really didn't know if this was serious or not. But then, on second glance, I come up to Erin, and I turn her on her side, and she's lost her color. I'm like, what's going on, babe? She's an RN. She's like, I don't know. I'm like, what do you want me to do? She said, call an ambulance. So I'm like, whew. I call the ambulance. The ambulance gets there. Paramedics come upstairs. They lift Erin up. They kind of like bend her back up. And when doing so, her blood pressure plummeted, and then she just blacks out, locks up. And I thought just right there, right then there, I was like, man, my wife is going to die right now. What is going on? And so thankfully, the paramedics, they picked up her legs, her blood pressure came back up, and she came back too, incredibly disoriented, as you can imagine. And then they put her in the ambulance and take her to the emergency room. And I, and I waited. What I thought, I thought was like hours, but it was only minutes for my parents to come and watch our two boys because, mind you, they're sleeping through this whole ordeal. All the people upstairs and everything, they slept through the whole thing. I wish they would have slept more last night, but that's a different story. So <clears throat> eventually, I get in the truck and have to make it to the hospital. We'll leave that part out. But I get into the emergency room there with Aaron. And they're doing everything they can to get her temperature up, to get her blood pressure up. I mean, they're working so hard. And, and I tell them, I make sure everybody knows she's pregnant. And then the ED doctor confirmed her hypothesis that our third baby was growing in Aaron's fallopian tube and it ruptured. And what Aaron was experiencing was shock from all the internal bleeding. Through the whole ordeal, she lost over three-quarters of her blood. And I'm sitting there for the first time looking at my baby's heartbeat on the screen. The very next day was the ultrasound. It was scheduled for the next day. So there I am, and if you can only picture it, I'm in the, emer- in, the, in the emergency room with my wife, looking at a screen with the heartbeat of my baby inside of Aaron, and then Aaron's on the bed, dying. So I'm like, doctor, what are, what are the options? And the only thing that was communicated to me was because of Aaron's instability, she had to be rushed to emergency surgery where we lost our third. But we praise God that Aaron survived. And some of you know this story, and you've walked with us through it. Some of you, this is news to you, because we intentionally kept it silent as we recovered from this. I tell you this today because... This Christmas season is not all joy to the world and peace on earth to some people. That there's conflict, that there's darkness, that there's questions, 
And some of you come across this text and it feels like it just jumps out at you. Well, what about the other children? What about my child? How come God didn't save my son or my daughter from destruction? And I can honestly tell you, I and my wife have wrestled with that question. And here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know the incorrect answers. You see, the enemy wants to lie to us and make us think that it's because God doesn't love us that he does stuff like that. Or another lie that the enemy wants for us to believe is that situations like that are a judgment on us for our personal sins. So although I might not know the correct answer, I do know those two are incorrect. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the Bible leaves no room for us to have the cross in our view and to think that God does not love us. It leaves no room for us. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the Bible leaves no room for us to think that when tragedy and crisis and darkness happens in our life, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for your righteousness, if that is what you have going on in your life and in your heart, when tragedy happens, when bad things happen, it is not a direct connection with personal judgment of your individual sins. Because here's the thing, your past and your present and your future sins have been forgiven. They have been dealt with on Jesus on the cross. All the wrath that we deserve for our sins has been poured out on Christ. And guess what? There's not a drop left for your sin or my sin because it's been spent on Christ The character of Joseph is this, is that the man heard the revelation of God and he obeyed. We see the pattern. We don't know much about Joseph, but what we continue to see in his life is that he hears the revelation of God and then he obeys. He hears the revelation of God and then he obeys. And you're like, yeah, man, he's, he's here from an angel, of course, of course he's going to obey. If the angel came up to me and said, do this, that, or the other, I'm down. I'm doing it right then. And I thought the same thing when I was considering the application of this section of the passage. And then it dawned on me. Every morning, if I want to encounter God and to hear his message, all I got to do is open this up and start reading. It hit me like a freight train. You see, Joseph was able to navigate 
the twists and turns and detours in his life because he was rooted in the revelation that he was hearing, and he was then responding to that in obedience. And so what about you? Are you rooted in the word of God? Not just reading it, but fighting to understand it, because there's some difficult things there. Not just fighting to understand about God, but to know him personally. Are you rooted in the scripture so when darkness happens and the lies start filling your head, you've got some ammunition back. You've got some truth to set the crooked straight. Are you rooted in the word of God? Because it was because Joseph was rooted in the revelation, he was able to obey, and it just changed who he was. It just put out his character on full display. And so much more needs to be said in one-on-one conversations about the tough and the dark conversations. But the point I'm trying to make is that Joseph was rooted in the divine revelation and this had a direct effect on his character. We've discussed the cruelty of Herod and the character of Joseph. Now let's look at the Christ of Israel. Look at that sex, the, the second section of Matthew 2.15. It says, This was to fulfill... This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And I don't know if you picked up on it earlier, but when Blair was reading, he was reading a passage from Hosea 1. And this is where this part of the scripture comes from this morning. It says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And, but Matthew's using it in such a way that it's like Jesus was fulfilling this. But then when you go back and you read Hosea, just a first glance, you see that in Hosea's passage, it's not a prophecy per se, but it's a historical reflection on what happened in the past. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Yahweh saying, out of Egypt, I redeemed and rescued my people. It's already happened. So what's Matthew up? What's he up to? What's he doing? You know, he's kind of copying and pasting this right here. What is the spirit up to? And interjecting this part into the, into the passage, N.T. Wright says it's like this. Matthew invites us to watch as God's new exodus unfolds before our eyes. Because you've got to think about it. When the Jewish reader, when he hears this part, he hears this, this, this verse from Hosea getting put here into the gospel, his, like, his exodus antennas go up. The exodus. See, the exodus isn't, you know, it's important to us. But maybe it's not the first thing on your mind. But you see, to, to the Jews, it was like the most important thing that had happened in their history. I mean, think about it. They celebrated the Passover every single year. But what is Matthew trying to communicate here? I wish I had the time to just sit here and just unpack all the connections and how this fulfills this and this does this and this does this. But you just have to remember a couple things. You have to see a couple things real quick. Is that Jesus is the true Israel fulfilling what Israel failed to do. God calls them out. He commands them to do things. And they fail. And Jesus is, you know, the embodiment of Israel in a sense. 
fulfilling what they failed to do. And that Jesus is the greater Moses, delivering his people from bondage. There's a, an Egypt, there's a, there's a sin, there's, there's a, a, a captivity, there's a, a, a slavery that's going on with the people of God. And Jesus is the greater Moses, delivering his people from bondage. But then finally, Jesus is the greater Passover lamb whose blood ultimately saves us from the angel of death. So where are you this morning? Are you aware of your inner Herod? Are you more aware that there is no such thing as Christmas without conflict? Do you see the importance of being rooted in the word of God to preventively strengthen you for whatever twists, turns, and detours God allows and sends our way? Do you see Christ as the great liberator of this world and our soul? Can't end there. You just can't can't stop right there. Because some of us, we've got different kind of intensities of faith, don't we? I mean, some of us hear this kind of stuff and we're like, yes! I can now, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm going to go face this world. I know that God's got my back and I'll do whatever I can for his glory. And then there's others of us that are still shaking in our boots. Because this text highlights that inner Herod and we think, man, I'm such a hot mess. And it highlights how we not only have sin within us, but sin that is done to us from the outside. And so it brings up all these anxieties and fear. So there's, we're on kind of this different spectrum, all of us in this room, somewhere, somewhere in between those two poles. But what is right? D.A. Carson, a famous biblical scholar, he gave this illustration, and I think it's great. He said, just imagine that there's two Jews in Egypt right before the first Passover. And their names are Smith and Brown. I mean, those are good Jewish names, right? So Smith, he comes up to Brown, and he says, man, are you a... You ready for tonight? I mean, it's pretty crazy what's going, what's been going on here with these plagues and such. And Brown says, what's the problem? Didn't you hear what the Lord's servant told us, Moses? How he told us to prepare the Passover lamb to blot the blood on the, on the doorpost and the lintel, so that way when the angel of death goes over, that your firstborn son is is not killed? Have you packed up? He told us to pack up and be ready. Are you cooking with the unleavened bread because you don't want to wait on it rising? And Smith says, well, yeah, yeah, man, I'm, of course. Of course, I'm not stupid. I've, I've done, I've, I've prepared and done all those things. But man, the, the, the flies and the frogs and, and the river turn into blood, I mean, it just, I mean, it doesn't worry you? And Brown says, no, trust in the promises of God. There's no reason to be nervous. If you've done those things, the Lord will keep his promise. 
And the guy said, well, you know, it's easy for you to say, you've got three sons, but I've only got one, and I really love Charlie. That night, after the angel of death swept through the land, which one of the two lost their sons? The one with a really intense faith or the one with the not-so-intense faith? Well, the answer, of course, is that it was neither. Both of them were able to enjoy their sons another day. Because here's the thing, is that for you and me, it's not the intensity of our faith that our salvation is grounded upon. But it's the object of our faith. Do you hear me? It's not whether you can drum up all these butterflies and all this strength and all this hope and courage and all these things that I know that the Bible does invoke in us as Christians, but if you're just not feeling it right now, it's not the intensity of your faith that your salvation is grounded upon, but it is the object, and it's the Christ child. It is the Christ of Israel who has come to do what not only what Adam couldn't do in the garden, not only what Israel couldn't do and what God was calling them to do, but what you and me can't do on a daily basis. Do you see Christ for who he is? Do you see him as the object of your faith? And rest assured that it is not about the intensity of your faith, but it's placing it on Christ. Let us pray.